on this episode of AV Week CTS Prep at ISE. Infocom is expanding more into the international and trying to get more CTSs outside of North America. Speaking of the CTS, we also talk about the best ways to renew your CTS. And does it matter if your AV components are made in your home country? All that and more next on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV Week is brought to you by our fine group of underwriters, companies like Peerless AV. This is AV Week, episode 274, recorded Friday, November 25th, 2016. Infocom renews the international. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host. Happy post-Thanksgiving for those in the States um, and for those handful of you Canadians who celebrate Thanksgiving again, even though you had it in October. Um, for the rest of the world, happy Friday. Uh, with us this week to talk about everything audiovisual news and a very interesting story that just dropped, dropped in my lap we're going to have some fun with. First and foremost, uh, the maven of AV Nation, the divaness herself, AV Dawn for Dawn Mead from NetAV. How are you, ma'am? Very good, thanks. How about yourself? I am full of piss and vinegar and tryptophan, so we're going to have fun today. Uh, <laughs> also with us, uh, the the guy, the only guy I know that flies more than Dave Labuskas. His name is Mike Braithwaite. Uh, he, he works for Clear One. How are you, sir? I am doing well. Thank you very much for having me and uh, looking forward to the fight. What uh, what undisclosed location are you going to next week now? Uh, United Arab Emirates and uh, and then Saudi Arabia. Good night. All right. Last but not least, uh, I, I'm going to call him the Joker to my Batman, but I'm no Batman. His name is Josh Strago. He is the editor-in-chief uh, of AB Nation, also is a fabulous consultant for TCOM. Welcome, sir. You could just call me your Riddler. I mean, that's fine, too. Okay, you're my Riddler. I like that one. There better. we go. All right. Um, all right. Up, up first, guys. Uh, we have in about, good Lord, two months now. Uh, and I say good Lord two months now because I'm kind of the guy that coordinates all of our travel and everything for AV Nation. We've got ISC coming up. Holy crap, because I've got to start booking some flights. But uh, coming up, uh, first full week of um, of actually second full week of, of uh, February a um, bunch of us are going over to Amsterdam Mr. Braithwaite will be over there um, it's a, it's become actually one of the things that we do one of the three shows that, that we cover that is one of my favorites because it is a combination of Infocom and Cedia it, it, not only literally but figuratively as well, as well literally in the fact that Cedia and Infocom own half of the show but it is a nice cross-section of residential and commercial AV. One of the things that, that Infocom is doing this year is they're doing um, some CTS prep testing at ISC. What that means is that for folks that they're trying to uh, reach out to in the European and the Middle East market, they're trying to you know, grab them along and help them 
uh, get their CTS by doing some of this testing. Shrego, I'm going to start with you on this simply because, I don't know, you're on the committee, so that helps. Um, this outreach that, that Infocom is doing outside of, let's say, North America, is it helping? Is it is it getting what, what Infocom wants, or is it, you know, are we kind of still spinning our wheels on this? Uh, this outreach is specifically due to the fact that um, in meetings that have taken place over the last couple of years at ISC that I know certain individuals have sat in on, the comments coming back from non-American Infocom areas is uh, they feel underrepresented in the CTS because the CTS guidelines don't represent their concerns. Um, they're very, very Americanized. It's all 120 volt power. It's all 70 volt audio. It's They're not focusing on how they do things. So the international presence of the CTS is a modest fraction of those that are uh, having a CTS. So these efforts are being doubled to try and make that international part of Infocom International much more catered to, uh, much more represented. They're trying to bring these people into the fold. And, it, and it's a noble effort because if we're going to be an international organization, or if we're going to have an international organization representing our international community, it has to be an international organization representing our international community. So this is all, there, there have been ongoing talks and meetings over there for a while. The people over there have been voicing their concerns as to how the CTS doesn't represent them. And now Infocom is doing things that are trying to show that effort and double that effort in order to increase that membership and in order to support that membership over there. Uh, I mean, the United States is still the most represented portion of Infocom. And expanding internationally, starting in one of the other top two markets uh, as it goes in terms of just where money currently is or where money traditionally has been is the most logical thing to do next. So that's why we're. it makes sense for them to be supporting it in this way and really pushing this effort to try and bring more people into the certification program uh, overseas. Don, as somebody who's had their CTS for quite a long time, does this make sense to you to, to get more international um, to, as Josh pointed out, the fact that a lot of the, the prep courses, a lot of the, the test itself does tend to lead more, more North American? I mean, I think the outreach effort is a wonderful thing, and I think the growth of the CTS program is a wonderful thing. Um, they may want to look at, you know, CTS international version for the folks outside the U.S., because you're right, the questions are very um, U.S., North America-centric, but I, I mean, all right, I got a card this year from Infocom. Apparently, I've been a CTS for 14 years now. I don't feel that old, but... Um, and what, since when I got my CTS 14 years ago, there was a very small pool of people with a CTS and it didn't really mean anything. You could take it online, you know, people would like have their co coworker, their employee take the test for them. I'm not pointing fingers at a certain former boss. Um, but you know, there, there, there were, it's, it, it has become a more credible credential in the years since with the, with the Prometric testing and the more stringent um, requirements to get your CTS. But over that time period, not only has it become more stringent and more valuable as a certi certification, it's also gotten some street cred. When we first got it, it was like, oh, CTS, big deal, you know, whatever. What does that even mean? Nothing. So who cares? Now I see it on government bids. 
I see it on minimum requirements to even think about bidding on a project, let alone winning a project. Um, I see it in more and more places that make it a valuable certification to hold. And I think by reaching out beyond our borders, we're absolutely going to increase the value of that because it's a global economy, regardless of who president might be. And we're going to be doing business with folks overseas. And if I'm doing a project with one of my customers and we're on a base in the UK or Germany or South America or, you know, wherever, we're going to want people local. We're not going to be able to fly our whole team there, obviously, but we're going to want people that are local that we know understand what we're requiring of them as installers, as programmers, et cetera. We're going to want local talent. And the quickest way to verify someone's talent locally is, hey, have you got your CTS? Have you got your this manufacturer certification? Have you got that manufacturer certification? Great. You're what we need. And so I think that shorthand is more and more important. And the fact that they're reaching out to the European market and beyond to increase that number is fantastic. And I also want to commend Infocom not just on the CTS front, but I've noticed in the past few years, even on their boards and committees, they've made a better effort yep, at awarding educators beyond our borders, at having people on their board of directors from Mexico, from South America, from Europe. And so I think that that also is a wonderful thing to help our industry grow, not just beyond our borders, but in recognition worldwide. All right, Mr. Braithwaite, I'm going to throw a, take a slight turn on this. You and I were talking shortly before we started recording today. My CTS is up. Uh, my my CTS is up. Uh, I got the same letter as Dawn. Uh, mine is nine years old, not because I'm younger than Dawn. I'm not. I'm, I'm actually slightly older, I think. Um, but it actually ends up in, uh, today is the 25th of November. It ends in four days um, or five days. I, I he and I were talking, and when I'm the same as as Don, where when I took mine nine years ago, it was online. I am at a um, um, I am incentivized to re up and get my my RUs together because then I don't have to go to Pearson and take the test. However, should that be the case, and the reason I'm saying that is. If I don't, if I simply, and, and yes, I, I've got the, the 30 RUs you need because I've, I've done certain classes over the last three years. I've taught a couple classes over the last three years. Should, should we, you know, make folks every three years or maybe, maybe every five years, sit down and take a test again, make sure you do know what you're talking about and you just haven't sat through some classes. Well, I think that's an interesting comment. First of all, uh, you just admitted you're going to be an undocumented uh, CPS <laughs> professional here in four days. So I, Careful, uh, but uh, all jokes I'll get aside, it in. Uh, Good lord, you do have a thirty-day grace period. Well, see, they, see, I've got thirty-four days. Then there you go. See, there's amnesty for you right there. But uh, so, um, with that said, I will say one thing: uh, the whole process of documenting, gathering your RUs, uh, putting all that uh, uh, on a spreadsheet, on a piece of paper on something like that and people lose them and people forget them and people don't have them. And so I think you're actually among a lot of people who they could have, they had enough credits and enough of a continuing education to go to can, you know, to keep their certification, but they don't maybe have all the proof or they don't have that. And so one of the things that we were discussing before we went on was 
um, how come this isn't automated? How come this isn't part of the CTS uh, professional uh, uh, database even, uh, which, which CTS already has to hold? Gonna interject there. There's oh, actually oh, a lot of these tools online now where if you do a manufacturer's training course, it does register you and you just have to scan, like you have to scan your certificate, but it registers that you were at that course and does do it all automatically in your CTS account. So this is done online. It's no longer just a personally held spreadsheet anymore. Um, it is limited though. It is, it's for the majority. Is it by manufacturer? I'm sorry, Josh, real quick. Is it by manufacturer? Is it like on the onus on them to do that part? Um, it, it basically, they send it into Infocom to let them know okay. that you attended is my understanding as to how it's been working lately. Um, however, it is for the majority. Guys like me um, who teach and volunteer and do all those other things, those credits do not get included in that. It is specifically for going to classes. So if you go to a lot of classes and that's how you're maintaining your CTS, that is done online. That can be done online entirely within your Infocom account uh, once you log into infocom.org and go through yeah. the process. Um, so that's managed for you. And I'll add, it's really easy if you go to your Infocom account and log in, if it happens not to have automatically registered that I took a class at Clear One, for instance, but mm -hmm. Michael sent me my certificate via email that I did attend the class and got the 1.5 RUs or whatever, all you have to do is log into your account, you pull down Clear One, you pull down the class name, and then it says, upload your certificate here, and you click the little button and it just, boom, it counts. So it's very easy to do. Yeah, in I fact, if you guys would like, I would be I would be more than happy to show you mine at the moment if you want to let me share my screen, Tim. Yeah. I, so you I, can I, see how easy it is. I, I don't know if I can if I have a, a choice on whether or not you can share your screen. But for those of you watching on YouTube, um, and I can just put this over here really quickly and let me see if I can share my screen very quickly. Uh, application window. There we go. So there you go. You can see how easy it is here. Uh, your education history, and you can actually see the RUs that I've already earned. So mine's up in July, and I still need three more uh, to renew my CTS. Which, on that. but That's yeah, awesome. so this this just holds everything that I've been doing, and some of this stuff is you know volunteer work, and uh, so like I said, some of these things you won't necessarily see, but like on here you don't see the fact that I sit on the certification steering committee. That's renewal units, so I've already made mine. Um, because that's a volunteer thing that I can't apply here. But these are, they're, they're trying to make it as easy as possibly can, but it tracks it. Um, so, you know, here's six and a half, here's four, and here's four, and they're all for IoT Insights. Well, I was at it all three days, and I spoke at it all three days. So volunteer, attendance, like all those things that come up, those are things that just go. Um, and then again, add if you want to add a provider course, because you don't see it there, simply go up here, and you can see all the courses from all the manufacturers, uh, you can, you know, if I was to pick randomly just AMX for one, because A is fast. And then you see all the different courses that you can do, and then you can, what date you completed it on, and if you, and then you can upload your certification of completion. So you just need to scan the certificate saying you were there. Very cool. So made it very, very easy to do this, but I just wanted to share that so that people knew it was there. Very cool. I, apparently, I just have to get online and just do that, so... All right, uh, up next from our, our friends over AV Network, why Made in America still matters. Uh, this is from a, uh, um, the uh, story that is, they're talking about is from Contemporary Research. I'm going to read a quote from this. 
By manufacturing the U.S., contemporary research is able to achieve fast turnaround from concept to finished product while maintaining a firm grasp on quality control. The company makes small quantities of its products at a time, leading, lending a boutique-style attention to detail within the company's sophisticated manufacturing facility. That's them. What I want to get to, and, and there are a number of manufacturers in, in in AV specifically, and it feels like there's more than the tech industry at large. I could be wrong. Um, but there's a lot of them that, that they manufacture in the U.S., they, they or, or most of the components, or they're put together in the U.S., what have you. Mike, I'm going to talk. I'm going to pick on you first because you're the manufacturer here. Does it matter? I mean, and, and when it comes down to brass tacks, does it matter where it's manufactured, or is it is it a marketing thing, or is it a is does it really matter at the bottom line? Well, you know, you'd have to almost separate that into a couple categories. Uh, does it matter from the end user or potential client who's using this? It might matter greatly, especially for those that work on government projects and and uh, do uh, uh, you know specifications where it is specified that uh, where it's manufactured. Um, from a technology point of view, meaning is it uh, do is there an advantage? Is there a technological advantage of why it was? Uh, on some things, yes. Um, I'll give an example, um, large, uh, like beamformer, uh, speaker and microphone array tech systems. Um, the PCBs on those are very large. Uh, if you, if you look at, uh, what some of those rays are and, um, offshore, which are great for think of things like, uh, phones, uh, or even set top boxes or touch screens and, and things like that, um, where the PCBs are small, uh, lots of surface mount or ball create array type chips on them. That's where the um, some of the offshore has some technological advantages. But when you get back to the size of something, um, those same companies that will do a great job with uh, building a phone, for example, really can't don't have the capabilities to do large arrays of uh, or large PCBs. Uh, if you have a PCB bigger than 20 inches, for example, um, most of those kind of companies can't even uh, build those. So those, like uh, from Clear One point of view, for example, um, you know we build a whole line of uh, Converge Pro DSPs. We have uh, Beamform microphones. Those are all made in the United States. And frankly, it's it's um, we can control the quality. But to be honest, uh, there's a lot of offshore that cannot do particular aspects uh, of it. So. You know, it depends on which where you're coming from and, and what you're trying to do. As far as like the story itself, uh, talking about contemporary research, it's a great company and, and really uh, uh, builds some fantastic projects. We do a lot of mutual things with them. Um, you know, I, I like the idea. I think that um, if we don't just pan it off as an excuse, uh, oh, we're trying to save costs. We're trying to save costs. We're going to offshore it. Uh, the, that's kind of a short-sighted uh, notion just because uh, even though maybe you can save some in uh, the materials, uh, the fact that you're shipping back and forth, that you're managing different teams on different parts of the uh, planet, uh, different time zones, you know, uh, solving problems all the time. So you end up spending a lot of costs and, and all of that. So when you look at a company like Contemporary Research, um, they... Uh, they would spend more time 
with some of their offshoring than what they're doing right now. So I know that was a lot, but no, no, it, that, that's that's why I'm asking. Uh, Dawn, she raised her hand when, when Mike started talking about government work. Uh, Net AV is in the heart of of uh, the Beltway, so they do a lot of of government work. Does that matter, and, and how much does that matter, Dawn, when it comes to government work? It matters immensely. It is of huge and utmost importance for any of our customers that are federal government and some of our customers that aren't federal government but do work with the federal government. Um, we're working on a project right now for one of the agencies nearby. It's a very large project and I can tell you two months ago when we were working on the bid, frankly, it was a pain in the ass because <laughs> back in the day, we used to say, is it a US company? Yes, fantastic, sign us up, we'll use that product. This job in particular, it wasn't, is it a US company? They'd love it to be a US company, that's great. But the important part is, where are the specific individual parts manufactured? Oh, seriously? So we didn't just have to say, we're buying this piece of equipment from this manufacturer. We had to say, or, or, or these products from this manufacturer, we had to, that, that is a US company. We had to say, well, we're buying these products from this manufacturer, but these two products are offshored and the country of origin of their offshoring is Singapore or Mexico or we had to identify the country of origin for each part that we were including. We had to include statements about whether or not the companies were part of some, there's some uh, customs and enforcement regulation that has to do with how they ship products, that has to do with preventing um, human slavery and human trafficking. Okay. Yeah. So there are human trafficking things. We had to have certifications on that. We had to have certain green certifications if they were offshored also as to how they're manufactured to prevent depletion of ozone. Like there were 50 little regulations that we had to confirm each and every product from each and every manufacturer, even if it was a U.S. company, and where they were made and if they complied with this one and did they comply with this one and did they comply with this one. It took us literally a week and a half, two weeks. And that was the only part that was holding us up from immediately getting the contract. And once we got all that paperwork turned in, they just like, we, we'd already won the job essentially. We just had to prove all it. So it's tedious and it's incredibly difficult, but it is so important for federal. And this wasn't even like a, a secure or a, a um, classified job or anything. You know, we didn't need any clearances for this job. This was just standard government well, office is, building. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, it's the government wanting to spend their money on their own people, not to be pointed about it, but, but their own people, their own companies, the companies that are still in the, here in the States. Uh, yes and no. There are so, again, there are so many regulations. It wasn't just about, is it a U.S. company and is the labor in the U.S.? It's, are we causing China to have problems in their groundwater contamination? Uh, okay. Are we causing South America to have problems with ozone? Are we trafficking or are we using a shipping? It's not even about the companies. It's about the companies that the companies use. Wow. Is the company that they're using to ship their product from their factory in China to to L.A. adhering to, to trafficking rules or do they have, you know, 50,000 illegals in the hold with the TV or whatever? So there are a lot of features in there that you really have to be concerned about when dealing with the government that offshoring it doesn't even help and made in us if you could just say it's made it's made in wisconsin it's made in you know texas in the case of contemporary research yeah. it's made in utah in the case maybe of clearwater i think maybe um or oregon for you know you know that that's gold in government it 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 tells us that 
we don't have to worry about the human trafficking. We don't have to worry about the the as long as they're following federal law, we don't have to worry about any of the environmental concerns. And we don't have to worry about unless there's something domestic, any spying issues. I mean, God love them. You, you know me, Tim. I love going to Infocom. I love meeting with the little vendors, yeah. little, you know, 10 by 10 booths. Heck, Contemporary Research, I met them years ago at Infocom when they were a 10 by 10. They were the hot sauce people because yeah. I got a bottle of hot sauce. They, it was their first year at Infocom. Very exciting. But I was walking around last year at Infocom, found a little 10 by 10 in the in the video conferencing UC pavilion. I was trying to give the little guys as much attention as the big guys. I walk and there was not a soul in this booth. Felt bad for the four guys standing in it, working there. Went up and started talking to them. And two words in, I was like, guys, I hate to tell you, I can't even talk to you. Because God love them, they were a Moscow-based video conferencing company trying to break into the U.S. market. And it's like, you might have a great product and you might be great for a lot of corporate work, but I work federal government and I am not even sure I'm allowed to stand in your booth, frankly. Jeez. So for us, yeah, it makes a big deal. And, and God love contemporary research and all the rest of you guys out there that are still all made in U.S. because you're our bread and butter. And it makes my job a lot harder if, if I can't use you. All right, Josh, from uh, not only Josh has three points of view on this. And the question is, which one comes through? Uh, Josh used to work for a manufacturer uh, who was mm -hmm. not U.S. based. Uh, he used to be an integrator and now he's a mm -hmm. consultant. So, Mr. Schrago, from all of those and all the other wonderful things going through your brain, does made in the U.S. And here's the other thing I want to point before I even say made in the U.S. Understand that about 25 percent of our audience is outside of, the, of North America. So I'm going to say does made in your home country make sense so here's the deal with made in the us work and we're going to do this in a historical uh chronological order for okay. me okay uh starting when i worked for toa the most entertaining thing was we had products that would work under the buy american act and we had products that wouldn't depending on which factory we shipped it from if it was made in one of our Japanese factories, no problem. If it was made in Singapore, Taiwan, or China, no, we could not use it under the Buy American Act. That created problems because then we had to know which, which literally I had to know which factory every single product was made in. Holy cow. Toa has upwards of 500 SKUs. Um, so painful. And that was just audio product at the time, let alone the intercom product and the security products that we also offered uh, without outside the US that we were trying to bring into the US at the point in time. So there's one. Integrator, uh, we didn't run into that so much here, but there we did run into the same problems Don did. We did less government work, but we did a lot of uh, other, you know, they wanna, th there are the restrictions that come up with that, that we have to make sure that that's there. We have to do the research. We have to do our due diligence. The consultant may put something together. Where it came down to, and this only happened one time, um, but it did happen, which was the consultant specified something, and they also that was not part of the Buy American Act, which you know, making it in your home country. Um, oh, actually, backtracking one point because I forgot one. My favorite one is it doesn't have to be manufactured 100% in the U.S. to qualify for the uh by american act it just has to have certain components so there is a mixer amplifier manufacturer out there who will make everything in china ship it over and then piece the last few things together in a state somewhere in the united states and i'm going to try and be as vague as i can not to single this manufacturer out 
And then they would stamp "Made in America" on it, and it technically qualifies based on. Well, how and they here's made the it. thing with that, with that, and they're they're not un. That's not unique, right? And, I, and I've talked. No, with several, no, I'm not saying it's unique. No, no, I'm I'm just, just, hang on, I've, I've talked with several manufacturers who are U.S. based to get around certain taxes and tariffs into Brazil to, is, is the perfect example because Brazil apparently has ginormous taxes and, and ginormous um, tariffs, like where a, a hundred dollar component is going to end up costing the end user five or six hundred dollars. They'll do the same thing. They'll they'll you know ship everything and and then ship the electronic the, the power components separate. Right, they'll put those together, put you know, um, connect the Edison plug, and then there it's 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 can you know it, it's manufactured quote unquote in Brazil. So, and again, that's where it comes into play. From the integrator side, there's research I have run into one instance where the Buy American Act was required. They had specified a product that did not qualify, and then we were forced to go through the justification, saying that no other product out there would meet this need. Therefore, we had to be allowed to put it in because it was the only thing that did this. That's the due diligence, and that that comes up on the consultant side as well. So it's who who's going to eat the cost of that? And if a consultant didn't put enough money in to do that research, they force the integrator to do it because that's how it goes. Like that's just how this rolls. If you're gonna the, the consultant's pro, uh, goal is to put together a system that will meet the needs of the client, and if they say that Buy American is required, then if they didn't put enough money to do that diligence up front, they can force it on the integrator after the fact. Um, it's you know how the game is played. Um, that it's not—it's neither here nor there because both sides of it will end up doing it, and it's just a matter. Because at the same time, once you do submittals, then the consultant has to go back and verify it. But rather than doing all the upfront research, the consultant can force somebody else to do that. So there's all these sides to the game as they come. Um, frankly, it is a good thing for the economy to have. The jobs. It's a good thing for the economy to have employment. It's a good thing for the economy to support local businesses, be they manufacturers that work nationally or internationally, or just provide a service and solutions. Like that's a good thing to support. But at the same time, you know, it's so little of electronics are manufactured in the U.S. by comparison. Uh, the comparative nature of scale as to where things are manufactured when it comes to electronic components and electronic devices, we are way down below my hand being on the screen and my hand is almost touching the floor by comparison to China, Japan, South yeah, Korea. Like you, I mean, not to let, let's tie this back to, you know, think about how many products uh, the entire Harman umbrella manufactures in the U.S. versus how many products Samsung manufactures in Korea? So, yeah. and not to mention what Samsung OEMs to everybody else that they make products for, you know, being one of the two glass manufacturers on the planet. Um, so there's all these things that come up with that. And, and yes, buying locally and trying to support your local economy and trying to support your local manufacturing is a good thing. But that doesn't mean you're always going to be capable of it. And that doesn't mean you're even going to be able to do it in certain instances at all. So there are problems and restrictions that come with that. Understood. Uh, although I will say to, to Josh's point um, about, you know, the, the number of SKUs produced, say, in South Korea by Samsung or whomever, that I think that's why the government has now gone from, is it a U.S. company? Great. Check it off. You're hired to 
tell us the country of origin of each part component. from each manufacturer and do do if the ones overseas do they comply with these things so i, I you know they, they they may be more cognizant of that fact nowadays than they used to be and and they're taking steps you know to handle that i guess all right we, you know, we yeah. go ahead all right. One one last thing is kind of a, a slight different uh, take on this is that um, this same sentiment, uh, as you know, uh, I do lots of projects in China. It's it's uh, it's a it's a big country and, and lots of AV going on there, a uh, tremendous amount. And I'll tell you that they have the exact same uh, program uh, there where uh, if it's not built in China, uh, you can't use it in, the, in these big AV projects. And so what's interesting about that is um, you'll take a, let's say you take a device that is made in USA, uh, you have a DSP and, and it's made in USA and you're putting in a project in China. Uh, they will not let you put that project in, in many of those for the exact same reason that this uh, uh, Made in America uh, program is uh, in place. So what happens is it's a shell game where now uh, someone sets up something in China the products that are built in USA go over to China, just like uh, what Josh was talking about. Uh, most of the components are built in, in uh, all over, but it's assembled in China, and then they can use it in those projects. And so it's just it's it's kind of a weird thing because if every country starts doing that, where every country is only using what's made in their country, um, that's a kind of a odd challenge that we're we're facing right now. And, well, and, the, uh, and you don't get you don't really get what those laws do or are, are aimed to do right those jobs are aimed to say to those, those laws are aimed to save the jobs in their home countries but here's the thing if if they're doing things like we're talking about like you said the show game it doesn't it doesn't accomplish that goal it doesn't get to that end it just makes manufacturers do a shell game mark a couple of extra extra points on it uh, I saw a, a story the other day um, asking it, it just in general, would you pay? I think it was, it was twenty or forty dollars extra for your next iPhone if it was completely manufactured in the U.S. Right? Um, because Mr. Cook is uh, Tim Cook from the, the head of Apple is looking at bringing the, those manufacturers uh, those the, that manufacturing facility back here. I want to say it was uh, New Mexico is is one of the sites that they were slated for that, and it, it's a legitimate question. Right? Would you pay an extra forty bucks for an iPhone? I, I don't know. I mean, the the, the U.S. is is unique um, when it comes to their their cell carriers and, and how contracts are written, and, and the fact that we really don't see the true cost of our our cell phones uh, as opposed to over in Europe, uh, for example. Um, so it, it it was kind of a a non sequitur question to me because you know we don't really see the cost, right? So sure, absolutely. You know what what the heck? Make the iPhones here. Um, you know, it would give them an advantage maybe in, in the in the government market uh, as opposed to, to the Samsungs, um, as long as they don't blow up like the like the notes. Anyhow, uh, we were going to do a story. We are at the thirty minute mark. We are not going to do that story. However, Aww. however, I am going to post it. Uh, I will I will put it up here. I will mention said story. The fact that apparently one of President-elect Trump's uh, transition people that um, is going to be transitioning and, and looking at the FCC wrote a blog post about a month ago saying, quote, unquote, we don't need the FCC. <clears throat> so here's what I'm going to propose to Mr. Strago, because he and I have slightly differing uh, uh, sides of this. Let's write some, some competing posts on this the next week. 
Um, Why do you feel like being destroyed in the written word? Because it's easier for you. Um, (laughs) And and, and, and reading the story a little bit more, because like I said, Trigo dropped this on me like right before we came on. The guy's a little bit out of his mind. Uh, The fact that the quote unquote, um, the the one I was going to read was, um, most of the original innovations for the FCC have gone away. Telecommunications network providers and ISPs are rarely, if ever, monopolies. Except for the fact that that's not true. <laughs> so, you know, I may not, I may actually be on your side, Josh. So, to be fair, let's remember this guy it was a telecom lobbyist for either Verizon or Sprint. I can't remember which one. All right. Well, just, just talking about cable or just talking about internet access in general, they're, if not monopolies, they're duopolies. So. I'm sure they're going to deny that they are a monopoly. I mean, of course they are, just like AT&T. Is, is, is no longer a monopoly because they were broken up 100 years ago, except for that they, they slowly but surely got back together and now they're something. All right, uh, we'll post this story. We'll uh, encourage comments on it. Uh, Josh and I will write some pieces over the next week. So thank you all so much. Mr. Braithwaite, how do people find you and or Clear One? Thank you very much. Please uh, find me at uh, www.clearone.com. Also, if you're going to ISC, I'll put out a a little uh, advance notice there that on uh, the 8th, that would be February 8th, 12 o'clock, I have a session there that's called uh, How Video DSP Nodes Expand Audio and Video over IP Without Any Legacy Processor, Video Wall Processors, Multi-Image Processors. So it's a cool class if you want to find out how to do some cool video walls and multi-imaging. Stop by there at ISC on the 8th. And you get RUs for that, right? You get RUs See, for that. that. That's correct. That's what you call a, a tie back there, kids. All right. Uh, also, Miss Dawn Mead, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. I, I was already jealous that I can't go to ISE, and now I'm even more jealous. That sounds like a cool class I'd like to take. Uh, um, you can find me online. My company is NetAV, N-E-T hyphen AV.com. Uh, you can find me, of course, on AV Nation and various places on the internet at AV Dawn. Mm, oh, and uh, our more re- most recent... AV Social just recently hit the hit the air or whatever we call it these days. Uh, so if you want to hear Tim and I and Miss Kelly Perkins talking about the recent election and how marketing and social media did or did not play a role in the results that you may or may not enjoy, uh, check out the show. I think we had a good time talking about it and uh, hopefully you have a good time listening to it. Yeah, and, and a number of stories have actually come out since then talking about people burning their reputations to the ground uh, in the aftermath. All right, Mr. Shrago, how do people find you? Uh, well, you can reach me on Twitter at J-S-R-A-G-O. You can find me at AV Nation, uh, Josh at avnation.tv. You can also find me at TCOM. Yeah, I have that day job thing too. Mm-hmm. So TCOM.com, consulting firm in the Bay Area, but also working internet, uh, you know, worldwide to support our clients. Uh, and then, of course, the long lost but not forgotten soundreason.org if you want to keep up with me so if uh there are many ways to find me track me and you'll see me talking and writing and focusing a lot right now on the transition as we uh grow ever more concerned about the future of tech policy and our ability to continue to do our jobs what with uh a very quiet industry when it comes to supporting us uh publicly uh for what we're doing right now uh, in terms of where the government policy is going and, and what we're doing. So stay tuned to Aviation to 
try and get some as un, uh, unbiased reporting as possible, but definitely in, uh, informative yeah. uh, posting on tech policy. And some of the other things that, that, that Josh and, and the entire Aviation crew is, is doing is we're working with the EFF uh, on some things as well. So that's coming down the pipeline. So check that out. My name is Tim Albright. Don't follow me on Twitter. Uh, at this point in the, in the football, the American football season, I'm lamenting the fact that we have a horrible quarterback. Uh, but go by the website if you would please. You'll find this program, a host of others. Don mentioned the brand new AV Social. Uh, we have a brand new um, State of Control that came out, a brand new EdTech that came out every week. We also do a residential version of AV Week. We call it Resi Week, where they look at the home AV market. That uh, is all happening at avnation.tv. Also, this week, uh, if you're a manufacturer or you just have a favorite product or education or uh, service that you think was phenomenal in 2016, we have launched our inaugural Aviation Awards, uh, totally driven by you, the listener and the reader. Uh, so this is the nomination process. It ends at the end of November. Then we're going to turn right around and by Friday have the actual voting. That will happen in December. Again, all you guys. Um, so uh, check that out if you would be. Please, all of it at Aviation, avnation.tv, avnation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for watching. This has been AV Week.